The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. Imagine growing a business with high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, and wildly happy customers. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. Welcome to the American Negotiation Institute's podcast, where we will teach you the skills you need to get more out of life. And now your host, Kwame Christian. Hello and welcome to another exciting episode of Negotiate Anything. I'm Kwame Christian. I'm a business lawyer by trade, but my passion lies in teaching you the keys of persuasion and conflict resolution. My goal is to empower you to engage in these conversations confidently and effectively by not only sharing what works, but by also uncovering why these techniques work through revealing the psychological principles that lie behind persuasion. This podcast is brought to you by the American Negotiation Institute, where we offer customized conflict management and negotiation trainings for companies and one-on-one coaching for professionals who want to communicate more confidently and persuasively. Our guest today is Keith Weinhold. Keith is an expert at helping you get strong investment returns from real estate without having to be a landlord or a house flipper. An active real estate investor himself since 2002. Today, he's a writer for Forbes, and he recently published his long-awaited first book, and he hosts one of America's top investing shows, the Get Rich Education Podcast, with more than 2 million downloads. In this episode, he not only teaches you how to negotiate in real estate, but he also gives you a brief primer on real estate investing. And my only regret is that I didn't have him on the show earlier, like a year before, because it would have saved me a lot of heartache in my first foray into real estate investing last year. Lastly, I want to give you a quick heads up that Keith and I talk about the fundamentals of real estate investing before we get into the meat of negotiation within real estate investing. So if you're new to real estate investing and you want to learn more about it, listen to the first part of the episode. But if you're familiar with it or you just want to get straight to how you could use negotiation in this realm, then go ahead and skip to 19 minutes on this track. And that's where we get into the meat of the negotiation part. I know you're going to get a lot out of this one. So without further ado, let's jump into the interview. Keith, thanks for joining us today. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Kwame. No, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. So how about you uh, get us started by telling the audience a little bit about yourself and what you do? Yeah, well, when it was kind of time for me to come of age and I had finished college and most people settle down and they look into buying a home, they typically get a single family home or a condo. But from the influence of reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and from having a couple aspirational friends that had done this, the thing that I did was I made my first ever home a fourplex building where I lived in one unit and rented out the other three units to others. So one day I was a rent-paying tenant, and the next day when I closed down the building, I was a landlord. And this is something very actionable for your, your audience, Kwame. You can still do that today, just like I did. I didn't have a lot of money, but with a, just a 3.5% down payment through an FHA program, you can buy a fourplex if you live in one of the units for at least 12 months. Your minimum credit score only needs to be 580, and even the 3.5% down payment may legally be a gift. That is a great way to start in real estate investing with a bang. So from the first fourplex building with cash-out refinances and something called a 1031 tax-deferred exchange, I grew that portfolio nationally and internationally with very little addition of my own money. Whoa. <laughs> 
starting off with a bang. That is impressive. This is really cool. And so for the audience, Keith and I met at uh, Podcast Movement, and essentially the entirety of our conversations was Keith just dropping value bombs like that. And uh, so that's why I wanted to bring you on the show for this exact thing. And so I think we should stay on this topic of education on uh, real estate investing and how people can get on it. And then toward the end, we can transition into some of the negotiation tactics that you use successfully. But yeah, tell us more about this real estate investing. I don't even love real estate, Kwame, which sounds sort of like a <laughs> counterintuitive thing to say. I mean, real estate can be kind of messy. There are tenants on the inside and there are elements acting on it on the outside. But it's worth learning about because real estate is the vehicle that's made more ordinary people wealthy than anything else. But most people just don't understand how or they think that they need to be a landlord. So, you know, we were talking earlier about maybe talking about my top three tips in real estate investing before we talk about negotiation. And I would say tip number one is be an investor, not a landlord. The second one is when it comes to real estate, it's not all about the property. And then the third one is understanding how a real estate investor gets paid. When you understand how you're paid, you know what to optimize and what to focus on. So those are really my three tips, starting with number one, be an investor, not a landlord. Your best and highest use is your time and you want to go ahead and respect your time. So you don't want to learn about how to be a landlord. You want to hire a good landlord. Your best and highest use is not going over to an apartment building that you own and going ahead and knocking on the door and trying to collect a rent if it's late and going ahead and reapplying the cove base that came off in the bathroom. That's not your best and highest use. You want to be an investor, not a landlord. So it's really about harnessing the power of other people's money and other people's time. And Kwame, I really think it comes down to this. There are really three sets of people in this world economically. There are the wealthy, there are the middle class, and there are the poor. So let's talk about what the poor does. Poor people, they work for money, and that's it. They don't have any money left over to invest. I'm not putting them down. They provide something of value to society, but poor people work for money. Well, what about getting your money to work for you? You know what? Most people think, boy, what could be better as an investor than to get my money to work for me? You know what? And here's the epiphany that people are going to have to have today. Getting your money to work for you will not create wealth. That's right. Getting your money to work for you will not create wealth. That's a middle class concept. Unless you've got some brilliant idea, you're the next Snapchat or the next Facebook. You can't acquire wealth by getting your money to work for you. And this is what the wealthy do to acquire wealth. What do the wealthy do? They get other people's money to work for them. That's the paradigm shift. That's what you need to do to acquire wealth. And now when some people hear that for the first time, Kwame, they're like, other people's money? Is is that legal? (laughs) And even if it were legal, would that be ethical? And how could everyday people possibly do that? Well, I'm telling you right now, as a real estate investor, You can make other people's money work for you three ways simultaneously. Number one is you can use the bank's money for a loan and leverage, kind of like I talked about in the fourplex example, where you can put 3.5% down and borrow 96.5%. 
Secondly, you're using the tenant's monthly rent income as your cash flow and your income, income minus expenses on a monthly basis. And then thirdly, you're using the government's money for very generous tax incentives, and you're getting that at scale when you buy something like a fourplex building. You're getting the mortgage interest deduction on an entire building, and you're getting something called tax depreciation from the government, which basically means you don't even need to pay tax on your rent income entirely. So really that's tip number one, be an investor, not a landlord, and harness the power of other people's money. Getting your money to work for you doesn't create wealth. We are now offering conflict management and negotiation workshops for companies. If you like the content here and you think your team would benefit from getting a customized seminar, then all you need to do is email me or go to the American Negotiation Institute's website to learn more. And now, back to the show. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors, I'm Lars Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. See, I wish that we had this conversation earlier this year because Whitney, my wife and I, we did this <laughs> the wrong way and we've been paying for it ever since. So earlier this year, we, um, we, we, have, we own a condo and we found a renter and we decided to rent out our place, but we made the mistake of being landlords. And so, as you know, I'm a lawyer and then I have the American Negotiation Institute. And so I'm busy. Whitney was in residency. She's a doctor. So she's busy and we have a two-year-old. And so at the end of the day, we're getting calls from our renter and the neighbors complaining about each other. And we have to do this at like nine, 10 o'clock at night. It was terrible. So yeah, I completely agree. Being a landlord is, is, not, <laughs> is not as glamorous as it may seem. Oh, and being a landlord can make you lose faith in humanity with some of the tenants <laughs> that you have to deal with. So when you have a trusted landlord, you sort of have that buffer between you and the tenant. And you know what? I own dozens of rental properties, but no tenant has my phone number or else my quality of life would degrade. And I be, I'm an investor to enhance my quality of life, not to have it degraded. Now, do good work. Provide housing that's good. Provide society with something good. My mission is to provide housing that's clean, safe, affordable, and functional. If I do that with people, I'm providing something of value to society, but I don't want to be the one directly overseeing it or my life falls apart. Like, you know, a little bit like <laughs> yeah. what happened with you and Whitney in the, in the condo. Exactly. Yeah. I, I ended up having to use all of the conflict resolution skills I talk about on this podcast <laughs> <laughs> when I want to be relaxing with my family. So yeah, you are spot on there. Well, really the second tip out of three with real estate investing is it's not all about the property. When most people think about becoming a real estate investor, they think about the property first, and that is a mistake. The property is only the fourth most important thing 
in real estate investing, and that kind of throws people for a loop. Well, what's number one? What's the most important thing? Well, in your case, really, number one, the most important thing, let's use you and Whitney as an example, is what do Kwame and Whitney want a property to do for them? Do they want a property to provide them with passive income or tax advantages or a hope for appreciation or for lifestyle investing like with a resort? So, you know, what do you want the property to do for you? You really need to answer that first. And then the second most important thing is the vibrancy of an economic market, because we're talking about income property here. And there needs to be a renter in there. And a renter typically has a job, and that's really the source of their income stream and therefore your income stream with the property. So therefore, you want a market that has expected job growth and population growth and in-migration that's projected to exceed out-migration because you know the property isn't any good if you don't have a rent-paying tenant in there if you're purchasing it for cash flow. So that's actually the second most important thing in real estate is the vibrancy of the market. The third most important thing thing is having a quality, trusted property manager. And the best way to do that is to get a referral from somebody else that's already using that manager. So only once those first three boxes are checked, number one, what does the property do for Kwame and Whitney? Number two is the vibrancy of the economic market. Number three is a sound property manager. Then and only then do you start looking at the property, because if any of those first three boxes are checked, the property is not going to perform. It doesn't matter how nice or how pretty the property is. You've got to be aligned with those first three things to have success. That makes sense. This is brilliant. And I hope the listeners out here are taking notes because this is golden, golden information. And I'm glad you're sharing it. Let's move on to number three. What's number three? The third and final one is understanding how a real estate investor gets paid. And you're going to have to listen a little closely here because a couple numbers get flying around on this third and final real estate tip. Real estate investors are paid five ways simultaneously. And that just blows people away if they're used to the traditional consumer credit world and their relatively low rates of return. So comparing it to stocks, you know, the S&P 500 has probably returned about 10% per annum on average over the past few decades. But a lot of investors don't think about inflation. Inflation is the true diminished purchasing power of the dollar is greater than what the government states. The real diminished purchasing power of the dollar is about 5% per year. A lot of economists agree with that. So with stocks, if you take your 10% return minus 5% from inflation, you're only netting 5% and you haven't even accounted for taxes, fees, and volatility. So you need to invest in a vehicle that crushes inflation and real estate does that as you're going to find Find out. So let's add up the five ways a real estate investor is paid. And you're going to have to suspend disbelief for a little bit if you come from the consumer credit world. But we're going to come up with a year one rate of return of 49% for a buy and hold real estate investment. So with this example, Kwame, let's say that you want to purchase a $100,000 income single family home. You need to put a $20,000 down payment on that property if you don't expect to occupy it. That's a 20% down. So real estate only averages appreciation of about 6% per year over the long term, just nationally and historically. Of course, that varies by market, but well, that doesn't sound very thrilling. So in this case, your $100,000 property only appreciated up to 106. Well, so what? But see, you got a 6% return on both your $20,000 down payment and the $80,000 that you borrowed from the bank. 
And the debt service payments to the bank are outsourced to tenants. So the tenant goes ahead and pays that mortgage for you. So your 100K property appreciated to 106, that's a $6,000 gain, but you only have 20K of skin in the game. So with your ROI formula, a $6,000 gain divided by your 20K out of pocket, that's a 30% rate of return. That is the concept of financial leverage. And if you're still left scratching your head thinking, wow, how did I get a 30% rate of return? Just remember, you got the 6% return on both your 20K down payment and you got the 6% return on that 80K borrowed from the bank. Again, that's that power of other people's money. So in the first of five ways, you already have a 30% rate of return. This is insane. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm sitting here in shock just going through it, but you're absolutely right. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So if you can get your head wrapped around that one, you know, the second way you're paid is with cash flow. You want to buy a property where before you purchase it, you expect the rent income to exceed all of the monthly expenses and the excess in what's left over. That's called positive cash flow. And in this example, we'll just say you have $150 a month of positive cash flow, your rent income minus all your expenses, the mortgage, the vacancy, the insurance, the taxes, the maintenance. You just have $150 a month left over. Well, that's $1,800 annually in cash flow that you get from your tenant. Well, that's another 9% rate of your turn when you take $1,800 and divide it by your 20K of skin in the game. So you've got 30% from appreciation and 9% from cash flow. And by the way, that 9% from cash flow, that portion is also known as the cash on cash return. Sometimes we'll hear investors say that. The third way that you're paid is principal pay down that is made by the tenants. So the tenant is paying down your loan for you. And, you know, this is an advantage that homeowners don't have. You know, you in your own home, you had to work. You had to go ahead and take your own money to pay down the principal. But your tenant's actually doing it for you in your own property. And that's another 4% return. When you take your annual principal pay down and divide it by your 20K of skin in the game at today's interest rate. So now you've got 30%, 9%, and 4%. The fourth way out of five that you're paid are with tax advantages. Like I mentioned before, depreciation and the mortgage interest deduction. That's about another 2% tailwind for you. And we don't really want to get into the numbers there because it can get pretty nuanced. And then the fifth and final way that you're paid as a real estate investor is you're profiting from inflation. You went ahead and you originated a loan. Now, you wouldn't want to put a million dollars in the bank and keep a million dollars in the bank because inflation would erode its purchasing power. But when you borrow, say, a million dollars, well, inflation erodes the weight of that debt over time. And you have 30 years to pay back your loan. And over the decades, wages are higher, prices are higher, and you would just pay back that same million dollars, even in these deflated, depreciated dollars. So with inflation being about 5% and you going ahead and getting a loan on this property, an $80,000 loan, it's going to be easier to pay back over time as wages and prices are higher in an economy. So if you add up all five of those ways that you're paid, you come up with a 49% rate of return. And now you understand for the first time how a real estate investor gets paid. And you know what? Most real estate investing educators don't even understand the five ways they're paid. And certainly most real estate investors don't even understand how they're paid. So we discuss how to optimize this every week on the Get Rich Education podcast. And just 
realize that I did not include loan closing costs in that example I gave you. The seller can help you pay those. We're going to talk about how to negotiate those in a moment. And this is passive income because I had management costs included with the cash flow. Most people just don't know how to keep score in real estate investing. So you have a lot of people out there that think that they're winning in real estate, but they're not, and think that they're losing, but they're really not. And it's just really a way for everyday people to sort of own a means of production and a piece of your tenant's labor at the same time. I love this. This is really good. I, You know what? Over the past year, uh, Winnie and I, since we've been hurt, we thought we were done with real estate. <laughs> we swore it off. But I think this might be enough to bring us back. So thank you for that. I think this is really great info. Yeah, it's just something that a lot of people don't know about. And, you know, I was investing in real estate for a few years until I understood all the ways I was paid. And I just saw my net worth increasing at a rate a lot greater than people that were just at a work a day job and investing in mutual funds through their 401k and through their Scott Trade account. And it's really understanding that power of leverage and cash flow and some other things where I've kind of figured out how real estate investors do get ahead. It's made more ordinary people wealthy than anything else. So, Learn about the right thing. Doing the right thing is more important than doing things right. You could do everything right in stock investing, but you know your rates of return, when you consider the drag of inflation and emotion and taxes and fees, it's very much outdone by real estate investing. This is great. And I think this dovetails perfectly into talking about the negotiation side of it, because there's so many opportunities to negotiate. And I think somebody like you, since you have a, such a strong grasp on the numbers, you could identify some of those opportunities to negotiate that can even increase your cash flow more than what the awesome investment is giving you um, just by itself. So in your opinion, what do you think are some of the top ways that you could use negotiation to maximize your rate of return? I really think the number one way to maximize your rate of return as a real estate investor is to consider that oftentimes terms are more important than price. Okay. When it comes to buying an income property, a lot of times, you know, you want to find out what the seller's motivation is, you know, something I'm, I'm sure you talk about on your show a lot. When you negotiate, you want to find out what the other side wants. So if you consider being a buyer of income property and saying your seller wants to get the highest sale price that he possibly can, that's a pretty common negotiating, or rather, that's a pretty common desire. Well, you know what? Go ahead and give it to them. Give the seller their price. Give them the price that they want, but you get your term. And you know what? When you pitch it this way to the seller, even if it's through your agency's intermediaries, this makes you sound like a very reasonable, rational person. Just simply present it as, seller, yes, I want to give you your price if you go ahead and give me my terms. That sounds quite reasonable. Few people can disagree with that. And we're in a seller's market at this time. The seller usually can get their price. So for example, in this $100,000 property I was talking about, go ahead and offer them the full $100,000. But you know what? Ask for $2,000 of seller-side help with your buyer closing costs. In most situations, 2% of the proposed sale price is the most that you're able to ask for. And what this does is it creates less cash that comes out of your pocket. You're able to retain that 2K because the seller is going ahead and paying those for you. And effectively, if that makes your sale price 2K higher, 100K rather than 98K, rather than just offering a, a lower price, give them their price. You know, what this really does for you is you're effectively able to borrow $2,000 
over 30 years. And at today's interest rates, that's only an extra $11 that you would need to pay <laughs> on a monthly basis. And you just save 2K out of pocket today. Now, maybe the seller would say, no, they're only netting 98K out of that deal. Well, in that case, you can just offer 102K and still ask for your 2K in closing costs from the seller. That last point that you made is brilliant. And I think it might have happened so fast that people might have missed it. So why in that case, if the listing is $100,000, why explain again why you would offer one hundred and two if they're balking at paying the 2000 Because that enables you to keep an extra $2,000 in your pocket that you don't have to spend like right now at the closing table. So, you know, effectively you're paying 2K more for the property and you're borrowing 2K more as well. But if you borrow that additional 2K, that's all right because you get to amortize that over 30 years. And at today's interest rates, that extra 2K payment that you have to make, that only comes down to $11 a month. The risk with this is if you offer 102K for a property with a $100,000 sale price, is now the property does have to appraise for that higher amount, that $102,000. But it's worth looking into. So the bottom line with this negotiation tactic is you want to keep more cash in your pocket today. It's something that increases your cash on cash return, you have a less outlay. Yeah, this is brilliant. And really what it goes to show is that not all money is created equally. Depending on the way the deal is structured, money can either increase in value or decrease in value depending on the business structure or the, the deal structure. And so this is a, a brilliant deal structure point. And it really takes expertise, obviously, but it takes some creativity as well because it goes to show when you're creative in these deals, you can get value in ways that you didn't see before. Yeah, that's right. And you bring up a great point. $2 might look the same, but yet they can be very different. A dollar in cash in your pocket right now is worth more than a dollar in equity that's locked up in a property. Because when you have a dollar that's locked up in a property, it's illiquid. In order for you to get access to it, you might need to wait 60 to 90 days. You might need to pay fees on that as well. So yeah, a dollar is not a dollar is not a dollar. One dollar in cash is typically worth more than a dollar in equity, principally due to liquidity. So keep that liquidity in your pocket, that extra 2K, and use that toward your next property. You wanna scale, you wanna get big. That's awesome. So what are some other tips you have with regard to negotiation? You know, really, I would just say as an overall philosophy for negotiation or for investing, Kwame, is to think big. And part of thinking big is, you know, really your mentality is you don't want to think about living below your means. Don't live below your means. Expand your means. Think about those things and those activities that go ahead and expand your means every day. You know, think about how you spend your time. We talked about different rates of return here. The most important metric, investor metric, is actually what is your return on time invested? What are you investing your time in? If you've got to spare 30 minutes, would you wait in line 30 minutes for a free Chick-fil-A sandwich? Or would you read about how to improve your credit score for 30 minutes so that you could get the best mortgage interest rate for the next 30 years? So, you know, don't live below your means, expand your means. So rather than thinking about cutting your expenses, Think about how you can increase your income with every negotiation tactic and every investing tactic that you take on. When you think about expanding your means, you know, there's really an unlimited amount of income that you can get. 
But when you think about living below your means, you can only cut so far to the downside. So don't live below your means, expand your means. I love it. And and the thing is, as studies have shown, when you set your goals higher in negotiation, you end up with better results. And so adopting that mentality and actually bringing it to the negotiation table will cause you to behave, I don't want to say aggressively, but you would be more assertive in moving toward your goal, your ultimate goal. And the higher it is, the more you're going to end up getting in most cases. So that's a tip that you can utilize in your own life when it comes to personal aspirations and specifically within negotiations, setting higher aspirations leads to better outcomes. Yeah, that's a good point. Set the bar high. Perfect. So before you go, can you tell the audience a little bit about how they can get in touch with you about the podcast and maybe some social media handles? Yeah, GetRichEducation.com and the Get Rich Education podcast. Every week, we have about 12,000 listeners, and we really host a high caliber of guests like Rich Dad Poor Dad author Robert Kiyosaki and a lot of the world's best-known economists coming onto the show and talking about how real estate investing's made more ordinary people wealthy than anything else. So don't think like a landlord, think like an investor, and you will migrate to your best and highest use. So it's GetRichEducation.com and the Get Rich Education Podcast. Perfect. Thank you so much, Keith. I appreciate it. Oh, thanks. I love talking about this stuff, Kwame. It fires me up. I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you're finding this information helpful, please remember to leave a review and subscribe. Our goal is to teach this to as many people as possible. And every time you leave a review, it makes it easier for people to find us in the search engines. With your support and listenership, we've grown to the point where we are now the number one ranked negotiation podcast, and we have listeners in 140 different countries. We appreciate your continued support and please continue to reach out to me on LinkedIn. Remember, everybody who connects with me gets a personal message from me eventually. It takes time because uh, more and more people have been reaching out, but I want to hear from you and we actually get to chat. So continue to reach out. Thanks again for listening. I'll catch you in the next one.